What's a Unitarian Universalist to do with Easter? Friday, I was invited to participate and then participated in a very long Good Friday service at the Episcopal Church in Milford. And I was one of seven speakers reflecting on the seven last words of Jesus. And part of what I had to say in my remarks is, I do not believe Jesus died for my sins, or your sins, or anybody else's sins. But I had to tell them I really like Jesus. Jesus is a great teacher and a wonderful example And I think that in his teaching and his example of how we treat each other, there's, well, maybe salvation to be found. Look at it this way. One of my favorite theologians, Philip Gully, says, I was not born in sin needing to be rescued from an angry God, and neither were you. We were born immature and incomplete in an unfinished world. Salvation is growing up, growing wise, and finishing the job. It is becoming whole and healed and realizing our connections one with another. And every now and then, we get a glimpse of it. And for me, that's what the teaching and ministry and example of Jesus does. It gives me a glimpse of it. What's it look like when we're actually a little more healed, a little more holistic, a little more connected one with another? And that's a salvation worth having. But this story of bodily resurrection that is told in the Christian tradition, I think a lot of Unitarian Universalists find it troubling, and I think it steers us away from the power and inspiration of resurrection as a metaphorical and symbolic idea. And yet, the people who are closest to the Easter story, the arrest and torture and death of Jesus, and then the community that grew up in his memory, the people closest to that story, they only thought of the resurrection as symbolic anyway. So how do we get to this idea that resurrection is a bodily resurrection? Well, I think like all good Unitarian Universalists, the first thing we do in diving into something like this is we take a step back and we think critically. And so doing that, One of the things to realize about the story we heard this morning, the story I read from the Gospel of Luke, is at best 50 to 60 years after the events it's written down by second or third generation of people who have been told these kinds of stories. And that's somewhere in the year 90 CE, 100 CE, 110 CE, hard to tell exactly. The Gospels of Luke and John have these elaborate resurrection stories. But as we go back in time closer to the actual event, the story is absent or symbolic. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, is written before Luke and John, and there's a little bit of a resurrection material in there. But Mark, the first Gospel, which appears right about the year 70, has no resurrection story at all. The story ends with the death of Jesus. Mark 16.8 was the original end of that gospel. The resurrection appearance that's in it today was tacked on decades later because decades later other gospels were written that had one. The older material than all of those canonical gospels, there's something called Q. 
And it's called Q because it's, it's called this mysterious source, and Q is the first letter in the German word for source. And so this source is where the Gospel of Matthew and Gospel of Luke get all their common material. If you read through the Gospels, you notice the same story gets told over and over again. Well, Matthew and Luke sit down with a copy of the Gospel of Mark on their desk, and then they add stuff to it, stuff of their own, and stuff from this other third source we call the source, which they think is very old, close, much closer to the original time Jesus is, is killed. And in the Q material, there's no resurrection story. And in a document called the Didache, the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, which also is historically much closer in time in the story, there's no resurrection stuff in the Didache, the Teaching of the Twelve The reality is that the resurrection was not all that important to the very earliest Jesus community people. It becomes a theological addition down the road, three generations down the road. And it only happens after the Romans destroy the temple in the year 70. And interesting things happen at that point. Resurrection stories start to come in. Because all those early Christians, for the very most part, were Jewish. There was no Christianity. So the temple's destroyed. How do you be Jewish without the temple? Well, now it's in the story of Jesus, who they think is the Messiah and has risen from the dead. That's how the Christian Jewish folks dealt with the loss of the temple. The part that, the the, the mainstay of Judaism, the main branch, they developed rabbinic Judaism. How do you be Jewish without the temple? And they developed what we now know as rabbinic Judaism. And around the year 70, at a conference in Javna, the rabbi said, don't let those Jesus Messiah people hang out in the synagogues anymore. And about the same time, the Christian Jewish people are like, yeah, don't get hang out in the synagogues anymore. We believe too differently from those people. And at that point, you get the later Gospels and the later material, lots of stuff about resurrection. So why is this bodily resurrection thing so huge? Well, biblical scholar Brendan Brandon Scott likes to use the example of Humpty Dumpty. You all know the story of Humpty Dumpty? What's the story of Humpty Dumpty? Humpty Dumpty. What's Humpty Dumpty look like? Where in the story does it say that? Not in the story at all. Why is Humpty Dumpty an egg? Not in the story at all. You just heard the whole text. Not in the text at all. It's in the pictures. And Renaissance art has the bodily resurrection and all the stories have developed. And it's Humpty Dumpty. It's not in the original story at all. Right? It's like putting under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. It's not in the original at all. So we use our critical thinking a little bit to get into the story. And this is important because the idea of resurrection and new life and rebirth and new hope is important. But we don't want it to be important due to stuff that is left in the realm of a little fantastical. We want real hope and real rebirth and real resurrection. So how did those earliest Jesus people kind of think about it? Well, We have an early record. If Jesus dies about 30, 36, somewhere in there, the oldest things in the New Testament in the Christian scriptures are the letters of Paul, Saul of Tarsus. 
And he, his stuff is dated somewhere in the late 40s, early 50s. It's less than 20 years. It's within the same generation, right, of all the Jesus death events happening. And so the first thing he writes, and by the way, if you don't know, out of the 13 things attributed to him in the New Testament, most scholars will suggest he only actually wrote seven of them himself. And the first one is 1 Thessalonians. And right at the very beginning, you get the first mention of resurrection in the Christian literature. And the words he uses are interesting. That he, Anastasis, stood up. And Agere, got up. And these were Greek terms that meant literally like stand up or get out of bed. So it was metaphorical from the beginning. And how do you get up from the dead? You have to remember that the guy who's writing this, St. Paul's Jewish. Judaism has no conception of an afterlife until about 100 years before Jesus when their apocalyptic literature, heavy influenced by contact with Greek philosophy, pulls in a Greek idea of an afterlife in a spiritual plane. Judaism, up to that point, to like right before the time of Jesus, they had no conception of that. They're Sheol, which is just where the dead are. It's not hell. It's not heaven. It's not a spiritual afterlife. It's just where the dead are. So when he's talking about getting up and rising up, what's he talking about? He's not talking about a physical body getting up. He's talking about that that. Messianess, that anointedness, that stuff that saves us, has woken up again. And he's addressing this to people who are not Jewish. And what's woken up or stood up in them again is a connection to God. But it's not about a body coming back from the dead. The other piece in this that people love to pull out and say, well, Jesus is coming back, so he was raised for the dead, he's coming back, is this term called parousia, the return of the Lord, except it's not really a theological term. It's a great term. It's one of the terms that the New Testament writers use to their advantage to talk against empire. For the parousia is a Roman term that means to prepare for the visit of the emperor as a god the conquering emperor as a god. So the early Christian community is making this really amazing from the bottom up claim that you know what's going to come in as a god conquering? This idea that, hey, what if we were all nice to each other for a change? What if we fed the hungry? What if we sat with the sick? What if we took the side of the poor against the powerful? That's parousia. That's the idea that's standing up getting out of bed again. And it's one of a number of terms those New Testament writers used. Kingdom of God. It's empire of God. It's basileu. And it's the term the Romans used. It's a Greek term that they used about the conquering emperor and the empire of Rome. And when the Christian writers used it, and when they wrote it, Christianity really still doesn't exist yet. It's this movement that we got a new idea of kingdom for you. Our idea of kingdom is, hey, what if we were all nice to each other for a change? What if slaves and women were people too? What if we sat with the sick and fed the people who are hungry and took the side of those living in poverty and being put down? 
How's that for an empire for you? And the people who heard those words in those contexts, they would have picked that up right away, but we have it lost. In fact, even good news, Evangelion, when Rome would conquer somebody, the heralds would go in and announce to the conquered people, we bring you the Evangelion of the emperor. The life-giving and transforming message of Rome. And so those early Jesus communities like, hey, we got another take on a life-giving and transforming message for you. What if we were all nice to each other for a change? What if women and slaves were people too? What if we took the side of the poor and the powerless and the left out? What if we hung out with people the master hung out with? Do you see what they're doing? The people who wrote this stuff, they were smart. They were subversive. They were kind of cool. They were kind of, you know, fully Unitarian Universalism in their values. So we want this story. And the closest thing we have to it is this guy, Paul. There is an eyewitness account to a resurrection experience. The people who wrote Luke and John and Matthew and those resurrection experiences, those are second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand news. But in the letter to the Galatians, the guy who wrote it says, I'm riding up to Damascus, I get struck by this ball of light. And the risen Lord, the Lord Jesus who has stood up, woken up, tells him, hey, stop harassing my people. Paul was going around persecuting the, the Jesus Jews, right? And he says, stop doing that. And he switched sides. But that's the only resurrection appearance we have an eyewitness to. And there's no body involved. There's a flash of light. But something in him had woken up. And instead of oppressing these people with this new idea about kingdom and parousia and good news he started to become one of them and where he really gets into it the biggest discussion of resurrection in the new testament from people who are closest to the event is 1 corinthians chapter 15 it's probably the most important thing we have looking at this topic Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical and then the spiritual. So the whole talk he's doing about resurrection is spiritual resurrection. It's the rebirth, the, re the waking up, the standing up again, the getting up again. Believing in a physical resurrection is directly at odds with what the earliest Jesus followers were doing. But it's strange, it's like Humpty Dumpty, that's not how we receive the story. We have a lot of Renaissance art, we have a lot of theology that's been put on it afterwards, but it's not really in the story at the beginning. We don't have any real, real clear physical descriptions of resurrection until the 17th century. It's all Humpty Dumpty-ish till then. In theology. Jesus, for the early Christians, was connected intimately with what he taught and what he did. The way to look at the spiritual life, the way to put it into practice. And when Paul writes about it in his letters, he talks about pneuma, or breath, that comes in with the standing up and rising up again. And he's making a deliberate connection and allusion to the beginning of Genesis, which anybody in his Jewish audience would know, 
with the ruah, the spirit, the breath that God breathed into creation. Well, that's what's happening when you take all these ideas and ministry and practice of Jesus and start to live them out. You've got that connection with a recreation, a rebirth, a resurrection. And so, as Unitarian Universalists, maybe that real and actual spiritual and metaphorical resurrection is something we need to make a lot more connection to. Because that spirit of God felt feeling active in that early Christian community is, in a sense, what we're really trying to do still today. Breathing life in, rising up again, getting up again, being involved in again the creative and sustaining and transformative work that is at the heart of all life, at the heart of all that is, and that I would say you can use the word God to describe. And so when you engage in that work, when you do the things that are life-giving and give life to others, you, in a very real sense, are the resurrection and the life. When you love the hell out of the world, when you stand on the side of love, when you do the work of becoming a welcoming congregation, when you take a stand for and with the GLBTQ community and their family and friends, when you speak with your state representative about mass incarceration and seek a more just application of sentencing laws, when you make and serve and clean up a community meal for your neighbors, when you hang out with the members of your community at the laundromat as they do their laundry, when you continue to green our sanctuary and our grounds and stand up for protecting the environment in our community, when you speak up for Unitarian Universalist values at home and work and school, you are engaging in real renewal, standing up, resurrection, new life, new hope. And the more we create the world we want to see, the more hope it inspires. And hope is important. Shawshank prison inmate Ellis Boyd Red Redding says, hope is a good thing, maybe even the best of things. And with those best of things, they create themselves. When you offer hope, when we offer hope, we practice resurrection. And to do this, you don't even need to be Christian, even nominally Christian. You can be anybody. One of our newer members here who's been coming to church with us this year said something great to me when I was talking about why do you come here? What can we tell people for our stewardship drive? And this is what she wrote. And you may have seen this in a, in a flyer. You may have seen it in our newsletter. She said, I don't believe in gods, but I do believe in goodness. My social circle is almost all atheist. A common joke when we make plans for Sunday has always been, hey, let's meet up after church. And I still say that, and they still laugh. Only now, I actually mean it. Why? And they ask that too. And this is what I tell them. Hopedale Unitarian is different. When I'm there, I feel inspired to be a better me. I'm reminded of my core values and my desire to help others. There's a realistic sense of hope, or at least an opposition to hopelessness, that is often absent among thoughtful, well-intentioned people. And you don't even notice it's missing until you see it again, which I have here 
I like being around people who want to make living in this world an optimal experience for everyone. People who encourage and nurture fairness, justice, compassion, and love. I don't know why other people go to church, but I go for the goodness. That's hope. That's standing up. That's getting up again. That's renewal. That's new life. That's resurrection. It can be made into a joke, the zombie Jesus, the reanimation of dead tissue. But resurrection is not a funny thing. It's important. And maybe the story of physical bodily resurrection is one that's not as easy to swallow as it once was. And I wonder if that's part of why the Easter story has lost some of its ability to inspire those for whom traditional Christianity no longer works. And yet at the same time, I see an interesting resurgence in science fiction and fantasy of stories that reemphasize new hope and coming back to life. Star Wars. The chapter where Luke comes into the story is literally called A New Hope, right? The light is going to come back. We got another chance. The Lord of the Rings. The darkness rises in the east. Good can't be conquered. The smallest, right, are the most powerful in the kingdom of God. And the little hobbits go and defeat the evil. The Hunger Games. An unassuming girl keeps up the side of good and right and comes back and stands up and rises up again. Maybe we get the symbolism we always have, and it's powerful. And maybe our Easter story can again be one of those kind of inspiring stories that bring out in us the new hope. A story of spiritual resurrection, finding new hope and new courage is like a map that reinforces in us when we practice those things, the ability to keep doing it again. And it's a call to action, a call to new and renewed life. And it's not just a good thing, hope and new life. It's the best of things.